The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome to another episode of the Shaken and Stirred Show. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and I'm with my co-host Tom Astor in Blighty in Oxford. How are you, Tom? Hi, Nigel. Good, thanks. Yeah, all good. All uh, spring sprang here yesterday, and then it's going to snow on Sunday, so we're confused, as usual. Well, the spring has sprung here too, although you said spring has sprang, which I'm, I'm maybe I'm getting it wrong. Spring has sprung. Spring has sprung, has sprunged. Sprunged. Well, either way, it snowed here today. So I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's, it, we are all confused. Well, anyway, everybody out there, it is spring. And um, in fact, before we move on, what are you drinking, Tom? Uh, I have made cocktail this evening. I've named it Le Quiberi, French Sunday cocktail. Basically, Le. Qui berry, which is le is for lemon, qui is for kiwi, and berry is for raspberry, with vodka. That is my cocktail. Wow! And you blended yeah. it in the blender or something? What do you do? Like a daiquiri? Or what, what is it? Look, absolutely delicious. On a crushed ice with with berries in it and mixed, no mixed, not blended. It sounded actually a lot better than actually it looked. I'm sorry to say, Tom, you you showed it to me, and it kind of looked like sort of. Dishwashing water or something with ice floating. On the it top. needs a stir. I, I made this earlier. It, needs, it sort of just needs a bit of a stir. Definitely needs a stir. <laughs> I've decided to go a little different. I've made myself what we call a Jalisco mule, which is tequila. I used a Volcan tequila, which is a, this new brand of tequila I've just discovered, which is, apparently it is right on the volcano in tequila. If anyone, you know, you know the history of tequila in the Jalisco area, there is a, a volcano called the Tequila Volcano, which erupted 200,000 years ago and essentially made that whole area fertile. And that's where all this tequila we get from comes from this volcanic soil. And it, this, this particular distillery is right there on the volcano. And in fact, the bottle is very cool. It has a volcano built into the bottom of it. And this is a Blanco Volcan tequila. And I mixed it with Reed's ginger beer. Uh, which is one of my faves. It's two jiggers of tequila to three of the Reed's ginger beer. And I did a half a jigger of fresh squeezed lime over rocks. So cheers, my friend. Cheers, nice. Cheers. I haven't mixed it yet. By the way, um, you were taking the piss out of me for saying spring has sprang. Did you just pronounce Jalisco as Jalisco? You sound like one of those Jalisco. Yeah, Jalisco, not Jalisco, honestly. Jalisco? Come on, mate. Well, that's the nice thing. Volcano. Volcano and Jalisco. All right. Sounds really that's nice. That's how you it in Ibiza. No, oh, no, it sounds really nice. Volcano Blanco tequila. Right, mate, right on that volcano in Jalisco. Amazing. Lovely spot. Lovely people. Lovely people. Yeah. <laughs> Very friendly. Very friendly. Love them. Booze news. <laughs> on to a bit of booze news. Yeah, I've got some interesting booze news. It's right up your alley, actually, Tom, because it is an expensive hand job, which you know you know a lot about. So to put this into context, oh dear, a oh dear, oh dear, I know. Sorry, but I thought you could you could audition for this one, old boy. A fistful of bourbon, which is this great bourbon company, is offering a hundred thousand dollars for somebody who can come forward and become their new ambassador. Literally, their hand, the hand that holds the whiskey in the glass. They are looking not for a spokesperson, but for a spokes fist. Their, the search is, um, is, is on right now, and in fact, it runs in through April 13th. You have to be over 25 years old to enter it. It's a sort of Hollywood cowboy-inspired brand, and they are searching, they started this search, and any, pretty much anyone can enter. You have to write a little bit about yourself, put a photograph of your hand, why you would be a spokesperson, and all the rest of it. And basically, this is the statement that they, they came out with. Here at Fistful of Bourbon, we're looking for a new leading star, someone who can truly wow us with their panache. Well, if you ask me, you, Tom, should try your hand at acting I, and um, I, have a go at this. You should, um, you know, TV work's dried up a bit. Now might be a good chance for you to get back into the game. Start with your hand. You know, it, it start with an expensive hand job. Yeah, would not be the first. <laughs> and Touche, you said you had some booze news too. Do we have booze I, news for you too? Mine's very short. I just drinking moderate amounts of alcohol. I like these stories. 
makes you, apparently makes you 25% less likely to have cataracts over the age of 65. I mean, what they, when I say that, they're talking about wine. It doesn't apparently apply to spirits and cider, which is a bit unfair, but wine, if you drink a moderate amount of wine every day, it renders you 25% less likely to need a cataract operation or have get cataracts over the age of 65. Seriously. Oh, I might something that was in a newspaper, which is currently being edited by a relation of mine, so there's a possibility it might be. Completely, yes. Yeah. I would not be shocked. I would not be shocked. We have a fabulous guest today, and I, I do believe that we are slowly but surely becoming the number one place to go if you are a top chef to be interviewed. Our guest this week is the author of more than 30 books. Yes, 30, it's a three and a zero, including the How to Cook Everything series. Soon, no doubt, to be the How to Make Every Drink series, Tom. He's going to beat us to it. And Animal Vegetable Junk. He wrote that for you, Tom. He wrote for the New York Times for more than three decades and became the country's first food-focused op-ed columnist for a major news publication. We're definitely out of our league, mate. Uh, he has hosted two television series and been featured in two others, including the Emmy-winning Years of Living Dangerously. Please welcome the editor-in-chief of The Bitman Project, Mark Bitman. Mark, how are you? Hi. Good, Nigel. Thank you. Tom, hi. Hi there. Tell us you're in Bermuda, but we're not quite sure that we believe you, Mark. <laughs> Here. Hang on a sec. Okay, he's taking us around. He's showing off right now. That's okay. <laughs> that? It's the glary sun staring right in. For all of you on podcast land, we still don't believe him. But Mark, what are you drinking? So I thought I would try to, I don't drink alcohol anymore. I sort of decided that I had enough for one lifetime. So I made this concoction of loquats, which are called medlars, and I think Nesperino or something in Italian. But anyway, loquat or medlar, which are kind of like also called Chinese plums. They look like apricots. They have two or three pits, actually sometimes four or five. They taste kind of like plums, but more perfumey. They're really good. Anyway, they're invasive here. They're everywhere. And March is the month. So I made a kind of syrup of loquat and mixed that with seltzer. That's my drink. It sounds like something my mother or my grandmother would make me drink when I was constipated. <laughs> but, but, you know, perhaps that would be even better with a shot of rum, is what I'm thinking. The old plum gin, and rum. I think, actually. Gin, even. Okay, gin. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, the English gin, like a bit of gin. And I'm sure the English brought those invasive plums over with them. Sounds very familiar. Possible. So, look, you, obviously you are an expert when it comes to just about everything to do with food and, and, and even, I would say, drink to some extent, but just food in general. You've written so many books, 30 books, and there's just an incredible series. I spent, I, I, I didn't realize just how familiar I was. I was going through your various books online and reading all about you, and my wife pulled out a book that we actually had of yours. Um, and, I, and, you know, and I was talking to a friend last night as well, and he said, oh, actually, we've, we've got several of his books. And so then immediately I realized, okay, this is too much. I called my mother up in Scotland. She had one of your books and she knew who you are. So I'm, I was like, okay, this is uh, one of those things. You've affected a lot of people. And, and, I, and I, a lot of people have come across your work and you write not just about food and cooking, obviously, clearly, but about the sort of philosophy behind eating and it, how it's affected the world at large. And Tell us, at what point in your early, back in your career, did you decide that this sort of to take this path and this sort of philosophical uh, look at, at food? It was an evolution. I started writing about recipes because really that's where the money was for me anyway. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but at the time I was making $75 a week, I was sort of happy. But that was 40 years ago. Things evolved. I wrote popular cookbooks. I wound up writing a weekly cooking column for The Times. But 20 years ago or so, it, it just, it didn't exactly dawn on me. Again, it was a slow realization that food was more than cooking. Food was more than fun. Food was more than restaurants and travel. And I did all of those things and I had a great time and that's fine. But it's really important to talk about where food comes from. It's really important to talk about how food is made. And it's really important to talk about what we eat and the impact it has on our bodies and the planet and so on. And so I started talking about it. And about five years after I started writing more seriously, and I continued and even continue to do recipes, but about five years after I started writing 
More seriously about food, I talked the Times into giving me this opinion column on food. And that was really cool because it gave me a weekly deadline to come up with a serious piece about food. And I did that for five years. It was a kind of very intense five years. And then I decided to write Animal Vegetable Junk. That's when I left the Times and devoted myself more or less full time to writing this book. Are you yourself a vegan, a vegetarian yourself at this point? I guess the modern word is flexitarian. And um, I tried to coin the term less meatarian, but no one was interested in that. I thought it was kind of cute. But I, I eat everything. I try to eat very strictly during the day and then sort of let, let it out a little bit at night. But even at night now, my portion size of meat or fish is much smaller than it used to be. I eat a lot more legumes than I used to and whole grains and so on. But I eat everything. I do eat everything. And so and for you, is it the, the purpose of this sort of mission of yours? Is it, you know, as, as far as the food and where it comes from and all the rest of it, is it something that, that there's a, an end goal for you? As in, do you expect to live longer or are you trying to save the planet? Or is it that because you just feel morally affected by this? Or, you know, what drives you? A really good question. I mean, do I expect to live longer? I mean, I ex- my mother is 95. My father died when he was 90. I don't know that I can do much better than that. Um, it'd be nice to live that long. You know, I think I don't eat junk food for the most part because I just think it's bad on so many levels. And it's not, in any case, I don't think I'd eat enough to kill me. So not so much that. I think it is more, I like for my work, to feel meaningful. I, I mean, I I did always say when I was young that I wanted to save the world. So I guess there's some of that in it, but that's such an unrealistic thing to say that it's hard to kind of fess up to that at this point. I want my work to be meaningful. I want to feel like I've made a little bit of a difference. I do believe that part of my reason for being alive is to try to leave the earth a better place than I found the blah, 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 that kind of thing. It's hard to articulate but it is sort of moral do-goodism, yeah. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, clearly... No, no, I'm not apologizing. I'm just saying it's it's kind of fuzzy around the edges. Right. All right. And I think that's fair enough, right? I mean, it, it, interesting. I, I ask because clearly there's a lot of conversation around this subject. There's a lot of great people who are you know out there trying to you know change the way we eat, educate people about what food is, um, yourself being one of them, but it's, you know, Jamie Oliver, someone who, who I also know, who's, you know, made this a sort of lifelong mission to, you know, to help children in, in England and in the, in the US and all over the world, in fact, with school dinners and everything else, and starting at that age to encourage them to understand, to your point, whole foods and whole grains and, you know, what's good for you, how to cook things and how to not destroy every aspect of the food before it gets in your mouth in the cooking process, you know, but and he's just one of many. I mean, we've, had several well-known chefs on, on the Shaken and Stirred show and who will all talk about the importance of food and where it comes from and what have you. You know, yet you often, to your point, you said that, you know, is that even possible to re- change the world? Is, is, it a real dream? is it a real dream? Is it a pipe dream? I wonder what difference have you really seen in your lifetime to either the, both the way we're eating or perhaps even the way we're farming? Is, is there a change, a real change? I, mean, I think things are changing gradually dramatically, not as quickly as we would like. Actually, I think my answer, I thought about it while you were talking, I think my answer to your question is, I'd kind of like to be on the right side of history. And the right side of history is to do things better. You know, you may not believe in inevitable progress, but you certainly want to be on the side, I certainly want to be on the side of making that progress happen and and certainly not being on the wrong side of that as so many people are. So what have we seen that's changed? It's funny, I was looking at, here's here's a little proof that I was in Bermuda too. I was looking at this cookbook this morning, Bermuda's Best Recipes. It's like the worst, you can tell it's from the 50s or 60s, whatever. <laughs> it's got like the worst stuff in it you've ever seen. And I thought, that's what I grew up eating. Not I didn't grow up in Bermuda, but they're Anglo-American recipes, basically. Stuff where you mix together canned spaghetti and tomato sauce and rice, you know, or something like that, and maybe a little fish. And that's, and so I think we have a better appreciation of ingredients. I think we have a better understanding of 
what impact agriculture has on our land. I think we have more sympathy, even empathy for people who work in the food system. I think we know what better food means. I think we know what worse food means. I think all of that has happened not only in my lifetime, even in the past 20 or 30 years. So to the extent that I can have an impact on that, accelerate that, that makes me happy. What's wrong with the food we're eating at the moment in general? What is, what is that? What is that, that that specific aspect that you that you think that is just wrong? I mean, you know, that I, I we as I mentioned, we have a lot of different people. There's a lot of different foods coming from all over the world. And, and this is a I guess this maybe this is a US question versus because maybe or maybe even speak to that. What is wrong with food in, in the world? You know, I'll I'll speak to the US. I mean, this could be the rest of our conversation because it's such a long answer, but I'm gonna narrow it down to just kind of the personal health aspect. And in the States, 60% of the calories produced and therefore 60% of the calories are eaten because you you can only eat what's produced. 60% of those calories are from ultra-processed foods. And there are many definitions of ultra-processed food, which is what I call junk, what most of us call junk food, including it didn't exist before the 20th century. It's made from things that aren't commonly considered food. You can't make it yourself. It doesn't exist in a home kitchen and so on. We all know what junk food is. If 60% of those calories are from ultra-processed food, junk food, and ultra-processed food has been demonstrated, as it has been, to be the cause of chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease, various cancers, and so on. And chronic disease is the leading killer of people in the United States, diet-related chronic disease first on that list then what we're eating is making us sick and killing us prematurely. That's bad enough. There's climate, there's impact on climate, there's impact on the environment in general. There's the way people who bring us our food are treated. There's the way our land is treated. There's the pesticide situation. There's the animal ethics or lack of ethics in the animal production and so on down the line. There's a dozen things I just happened to single out that. We could talk about the impact of industrial agriculture on climate. We could talk about the impact of pesticide use on human health. We could talk about 60 billion animals a year being raised for food worldwide, a number that's growing. And we could talk about any of those things. It's a long list. When you look at what's happening globally is that the U.S. first exported this style of growing food and the style of producing food, first exported it to Europe after World War II. That was what was part of what was called the Marshall Plan. I'm not saying the Marshall Plan itself was a bad thing. Part of it was legitimate food relief, but part of it was teaching Europeans about how to do agriculture industrially. And then the Green Revolution was the U.S.'s attempt, or the U.S. and, and by that time, global corporations attempt to teach that style of agriculture, or export that style of agriculture to the then non-industrialized world. So that, you know, the, the whole idea is not to feed people better, to help people do the kind of agriculture that's best suited to their culture, their land, their style, whatever, but to increase profits for big food, big egg, and big chemical. And that's sort of the goal, the major goal primary goal of of the American style of eating is profit. Could one argue, not argue, though, that there really isn't enough good food to go around, though, anyway? Yeah, of course. We can argue that. There's no argument. There isn't enough good food to go around. And the answer is, how are we going to get enough good food to go around? Because the fact that there isn't doesn't mean it's impossible. The question is, how do we do that? Because it's not a pipe dream to say, oh, everybody should be eating, everybody should be eating good food, it should be affordable, accessible, widely available, and so on. It's a pipe dream to think that this system as it's construed now can be considered sustainable, because it's not. Can I just ask, I mean, initially when this whole thing, you know, started, when the, you know, the Americans inventing this fast food system and and this, it's also, I I mean, I suppose you could say it lifted a lot of people out of the hunger bracket, you know, people who would otherwise, you know, actually go hungry. It was convenient food, mass produced, therefore cheaper, more people, and pe- so suddenly people could actually eat more than they were than they used to. Now, the fact that it's not, you know, it's questionable the nutrition, you know, that side of, it, but it still it still means that you know, as as the population's growing, more people need food. 
it does lift people out of that kind of poverty and, and hunger bracket if, if you do that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I live on a farm and my neighbor is actually doing a television program on farming at the moment, which, which would be quite interesting. I was talking to him the other day, and he said, you know, there's 50 years left tops in the soil. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's 50 years left of soil. You know, in 50 years' time, we will not be able to grow. It doesn't matter how, much, how many chemicals you've got. It doesn't matter how much nitrogen you want to put on it. The soil is going to degrade to such an extent that you will not be able to grow anything in our fields in 50 years' time. Now, he's picked up on that. So, you know, if you take those two equations, like, people need to eat and how industrial farming works. Are we going to be growing good food in literally? Is it going to be laboratory stuff? I mean, I mean, how do you see it panning out? Well, there's three questions there, Tom. So the first one is, yes, a lower percentage of people are hungry than were 30 years ago. It's actually about the same number of people, but since there are more people on earth, it's a lower percentage. It's not clear that industrial agriculture is responsible for feeding those people or lifting them out of poverty, as you say, because 70% of the agriculture in the world is still non-industrial agriculture. So there have been advances in what you might call peasant agriculture as well, and that's without the support, in fact, with the, with the lack of support by organizations who would like to see industrial agriculture promoted. So we haven't really tried the alternative, and that's it's hard to argue that you know that this is the only way to do things when we haven't tried the alternative. Still, I would I think I'm gonna try to postpone this comment, but I would argue that we're not gonna go from A to Z. We're not gonna destroy, dismantle industrial agriculture overnight and suddenly all going to be replenishing the soil, doing regenerative agriculture and so on. We need to take some steps to find what that road looks like, to, to find a road to a better kind of agriculture. And I think those steps are visible and they're becoming more visible and that that'll show us the way to go. As for soil destruction, lab-produced lab food and so on, the soil destruction thing is, is real, but soil can be fed and rebuilt. And if you talk to progressive farmers, sounds like your neighbor might be one of them. You talk to those kind of people, they'll say, our primary crop is soil. We're primarily farming to enhance the soil. And that can be done, and you can farm in a way that you're adding topsoil rather than destroying it. And that is a goal that we should approach as quickly as we can. The lab-based stuff, the jury's out. I mean, nothing comes from nothing. So you have to put something into the lab to get the food out. So, you know, it's, is it efficient? Is it, is it resource friendly? Is it environment friendly? Is it nutritionally friendly? Those questions really haven't been answered. As I said, I'm on a, I live on a farm. And the way we operate, you know, let's say that we're kind of, you know, we have an advanced farming system in the sense that, you know, we're intensive agriculture. We have been, and there's now a move since the United Kingdom left the European Union, you know, farmers aren't being paid. You know, we were, we were paid to farm or paid not to farm, you know. And at the moment, so there are grants out there that we can get from the government which allow us to plant certain nitrogen-rich plants that just to, to regenerate soil in a sort of, in, a, in an organic way. And at the same time, in another field, we're growing wheat, which in order to drill that field, we've got to buy the seed from so-and-so is the big, big, big agribusiness. And at the end of it, you don't collect, you know, you're not allowed to then hold some seed back and replant. You've got to rebuy it all again. So you've got this incredibly confused, you, you know. I mean, if you try to basically get any city kid to try and explain to them what was going on in the country, I, I mean, I'm confused. When I look at what's available and how we're supposed to be doing things and what, where the guidance is, certainly in the UK, the guidance is, no one really, I mean, no, everyone's scratching around. And the problem about government, I found, is, is that you've got a bunch of people in government who, the only time they've been in the field is they're probably standing there holding a shotgun, shooting a pheasant. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so I do know what you mean. Everyone's kind of running around with one hand trying to kind of, you know, do the right thing. And then the other hand, ruled by a big agribusiness. I don't right. Well, the government is beholden to the big corporations. And, and even when it's not USDA, our Department of Agriculture, 
has a dual mission. One mission is to promote the sale of US crops, and the other mission is to help people eat better. Well, those are in direct conflict because promoting the sale of US crops actually means your field B, the field that's growing industrially produced wheat, and, and helping people to eat better is kind of your field A, the field where you're trying to rebuild the soil and eventually be able to produce you know, real food crops there. So it is a confused situation. Again, I'll say it's not gonna be resolved tomorrow. We're not gonna like suddenly have some enlightened secretary of agriculture or minister for agriculture. And three weeks from next Tuesday, it's gonna all be okay. We have to acknowledge that the problem is so dire that even small steps put us on the road toward, toward trying to figure out a way that you and I and maybe the majority of people can agree that we're going to make things better in agriculture because we can, like I said before, we can only eat what we produce. So if we produce bad food, we're gonna eat bad food. If we produce food that's harmful to the environment, maybe we have 50 years, maybe that's right. I mean, here in the States, what we're starting maybe to address climate change finally, if we can get some of this stuff Biden is talking about through Congress. So I think there's hope to address agricultural issues also. How do we do agriculture without harming the environment then? We treat soil like it's a limited resource. And we figure out how to do agriculture in a way that builds soil or at least maintains soil instead of robbing soil. And people know how to do that. So the question is really, how do we get to that place? But that's what regenerative agriculture or the word people are using now, agroecology is about. It's about protecting soil, building soil, growing crops in a way that enriches soil instead of robs soil because soil is finite. There's a limited amount of it. And we spent 100, 150 years removing it from the earth and we have to start replenishing it. I mean, that's the short answer that doesn't address antibiotics in the food supply. It doesn't address pesticides. It doesn't address labor issues. It doesn't address whether good food is affordable or not. It doesn't address a lot of things, but it begins to address how we do agriculture. What do we need to address first, do you think? I mean, I'm just sort of as far as like an order to these things, because you talked about, obviously you're talking about agriculture right now, but no doubt what people, like choices people are making, the sort of market demands and that kind of thing must obviously play a huge role in what's going on. Yes. Yeah, I finished this book a year ago. I finished writing it a year ago. It was published six weeks, 10 weeks ago. I've had a lot of time to think about this without the pressure of finishing the book. So I think my thinking's evolved a little bit. And it's easy to ask that question, what do we do? But it's harder to ask that question, what do we do? That's realistic to consider doing. So I could say, let's stop using chemicals in agriculture or, or let's stop doing monoculture, growing one crop on a at a time on big fields with chemicals and with machinery and so on. But it doesn't make any sense to say those things because it, it just ain't happening. So what might happen that are good first steps to help us make the food system better and help us allow us to see, to recognize that there are things we can do to, to move in the right direction. So the first few things I would, I would do are I would rein in the marketing of junk food to children. Because I don't think that if we, if we allow marketers to sell Tony the Tiger and Coke and McDonald's and so on to little kids and little kids grow up effectively addicted to sugar and junk food, we all know how hard it is to change our diet as grown-ups. So I think that sort of limiting the, the sale and marketing of junk food to kids is an early on thing. Getting antibiotics out of the routine use in raising animals is a big deal because we've made antibiotics less effective and there's a danger they won't work on people. They already are resistant to way more bacteria than they used to be. The more we use in raising animals, the more resistant bacteria are going to become. The other thing is that antibiotics allow manufacturers to create crowd animals into these living situations that are beyond imagination, which are hidden from most of us. I think that if we were able to see how animals were actually raised, our consumption of animal products would fall immediately. 
we need to use existing regula regulations and pass new regulations that limit the use of carcinogenic pesticides, which are harmful not only to farm workers, well, let's say especially to farm workers, but, but also to the rest of us, and also to strengthen and enforce existing regulations in terms of raising animals in, in confinement because it poisons the air, it poisons the water, it poisons the land around those places, uh, and the residues are, are everywhere. I kind of think that's a start. I mean, if we were able to do some of those things, and they're all, they're all enforceable, some of them without even passing new legislation, just by having, again, forgive me, I'm talking about the states, but just by having existing regulations actively enforced by our Environmental Protection Agency, our Food and Drug Administration, our Department of Agriculture, we could make a huge difference, or we could make enough of a difference so that people would see that governments can actually take positive steps instead of like being confused as all hell, like Tom was just saying. When I was I mentioned earlier about the you know the, the European subsidies that we were getting to farm or or not to farm, you know you've been paid on your acreage and that's the way it works, and you know just that in itself that you're we're being paid subsidized by the government to grow crops that we then take to market and sell. And we've got a whole this whole futures market. You can sell your grain six months before you've you know harvested it. You can take a punt on what the weather's going to be like in England. That's a tricky one. <laughs> but the point is we're being paid to actually make something that people need, right? Right. Now the issue is as someone once said, you know, you're never going to win an election if you put the price of food up. I mean for me, one, one way of changing things overnight would be to make food more expensive. I mean, make it part of your weekly budget, right? And no government's going to do this because it's a vote, you know, it's, it's a killer. People want to spend their money on leisure and cars and whatever it is. But food is too cheap. And why, we, as a farmer in England, why am I being paid and subsidized by a government to produce because the labor's too expensive? You know, I can't afford to. If I sold my food for what it cost me to produce, even with a little profit, you know, a loaf of bread would be twice as expensive as it is. I mean, do you think that would that be a kind of key element of, of trying to change things? I mean, I agree with you that food is underpriced. There are a lot of costs that just aren't reflected in the price at market. But maybe rather than making it more expensive, which is one solution, but then of course you have to address people's income because. Plenty of people can't afford enough food as it is. If you make it more expensive, what are you going to do about that? I mean, the hidden costs, you know, in the States, there's a, there's a really well-known chart or graph. I, I guess I kind of don't know the difference, but it, it looks like this. It's an X. And as food costs go up, healthcare costs go down. And, and it, there's a direct correlation there. The worse food you eat, the more you're going to, expect, you're, you're going to spend on healthcare. So you might argue, I might argue, I have argued, that we're going to subsidize food. Maybe it's not such a terrible thing to subsidize food. We subsidize electricity. We subsidize transportation. No one really sees a problem with that. If we're going to subsidize food, why don't we subsidize good food instead of subsidizing bad food? I mean, that's a pretty logical thing to say. We, let's have that argument. Let's see someone argue no, let's subsidize. It's more important to subsidize junk food than it is to subsidize fruits and vegetables. Let's pay you to grow food that's good for people instead of food that's going to be processed into white bread. Yeah, no, I, I, as a farmer, I completely get that. In England at the moment, because we've now left the EU, we're in this weird transition phase where the government are trying to work out what farmers should be paid and what farmers should be paid for. And I think the government point, the government perspective is, well, you know, if we're subsidizing farmers, right, there's got to be a benefit to the general the public, the general public. In England, I'm afraid what that boils down to is, is you know, access. So actually, you need more access for the public to, to be able to go to the countryside and stuff, which, which, you know, is one thing. Also, they're trialing all these schemes about paying farmers to, you know, to create wildlife corridors and pollination areas for bees and use less pesticides. And it's very, it's a very eco-centric thing that's going on at the moment. I mean, great for, for nature. It looks great for nature. For the farmer, it's already looking like, well, you know, 
you become kind of subsidy junkies, really. I mean, over you know, over the years, right. and suddenly, you know, you're taking a hell of a hit on 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 your income. Fine, you know, it's manageable. But at the same time, all we're doing in the UK is producing a scenario whereby we're just becoming super reliant on imports. So it doesn't actually. It's not solving the problem that, that kind of we're discussing about bad food. It's just making food, you know, it's making us more dependent on other countries. And, and um, we're kind of prettying up our backyards, which, you know, I mean, no bad thing to encourage nature. But at the same time, it's pushing the problem around. It's not really, I don't know. Well, you've gone back and forth on this stuff for a couple hundred years because you had prohibited imports and then you encouraged imports. And now you're, I don't know what you're doing. I mean... You're no more of a mess than any other Western industrialized country, but you do have this new wrinkle that you're having to deal with. (laughs) Well, we can't feed ourselves. I mean, the point is, before the last, we had a foot and mouth outbreak, which is a horrible disease, you know, and we'd kill a lot of our cattle. It's basically like, you know, if you imagine COVID, but for cows, but instead of, you know, putting people in hospitals, you just, you know, with cattle, you just kill, you know, you just wipe them out. And after that last outbreak, we then we were in a position where we literally, as a nation, certainly can't and no longer we can't subsistence farmers. We cannot. We can no longer feed ourselves. And from that moment, it's got worse and worse and worse. We can absolutely. I think something like I don't know what percentage is. It's something like you know, sixty percent of our food is imported. You know, at the moment, also it's it's a huge. You know, from Eastern Europe, where it's breadbasket of Europe. You know, but and and you know, if there's a if there's a particularly nasty wet spell during harvest time in Eastern Europe, then, you know, what's the American market doing? And then what's Russia doing? And then, you know, but we're reliant. We're totally reliant on other nations. We can't feed ourselves anymore. I mean, as from a farming perspective, it's just, it, it seems like there's no um, concentrated sense and collaborative kind of movement to, to deal with the issues that we're talking about now. You know, there's no kind of combined thinking. There's no joined up thinking. Everything's so disconnected. I mean, is that one of the biggest obstacles, do you think? I mean, do you recognize that? Yeah, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I I think it's not clear that you can't ever feed yourselves. It's clear that you're not organized now to feed yourselves, and no one's addressing that. True. So as you say, they're, they're doing piecemeal stuff about biodiversity or about wildlife corridors or whatever. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but do they have a plan I mean, I don't want to hold, uh, hold France up as a shining example, but France claims to have a plan to have 25% regenerative agriculture by 2030. I don't know the details of that, and I don't know if that's realistic. At least they're talking about that on the highest levels. We're certainly not having that conversation here on the highest levels. Is it, is it true that there's not a, enough good food to go around? It's true that there's not enough good food to go around now, and I'll you know, I'll remind you of that 60% of our calories coming from ultra-processed foods. If everybody were to follow our nutritional guidelines and suddenly start eating five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables every day, it would take probably two years for our food supply to catch up with that, with that demand. And most of the food that did catch us up with that demand would be, you know, as Tom just said, would, said, would be imported. So, we as a country, you as a country, we as a world are not growing enough good food to feed everyone. That is true. But we are growing enough calories to feed everyone. And the land could be shifted to grow good food so that everybody was getting good food. Right now, so much land is devoted to producing corn and soybeans, mostly in this country, for junk food, corn and soybeans for animal feed corn for ethanol, which is a complete waste of cropland. It's not even an efficient fuel. It's not a question of whether we have the ability to grow good enough good food for everyone. It's a question of how do we get to a place where we're doing that? It's not impossible. It's certainly not happening right now. Talk to us about food waste, because there's the other side of this equation in some extent. There's sort of like there's okay, we're talking about making the food and we haven't got enough food, but then there's also an enormous amount of wasted food, is there not? There is a lot of wasted food, and you don't want to blame, of course, it makes total sense to eliminate as much waste in the supply chain as you can. I mean, you don't want to be, I don't think you want to be blaming individuals for not finishing what's on their plate. I mean, perhaps we could be in the habit of 
of smaller servings. I mean, for sure, we could be in the habit of smaller servings. But I do think that a kind of overall plan to address food waste would also look at what we're growing and how we're growing it. Because if you're planting stuff that's not good for people in the first place, if you're planting crops that are destined to be food that's going to make people sick while it's robbing the land of nutrients and, and, and topsoil, then that's a waste. And we need to be looking at it from the start. The start is what do we plant? Why do we plant it? What's its destiny? And if the land is being used to plant things that are bad for us and bad for it, that's a waste from day one. It doesn't matter if you throw out your chicken McNuggets that you didn't eat. The question was why you produced them in the first place. No, interesting. I mean, you know, I, I grew up, you know, as did so many of us, where with the you know the cost of meat, for example, being far higher than it is today, and you know, my mother would buy, say, roast beef or something, and we'd make it on a Sunday, and you know, the the following day we would be having you know elements of the of the leftovers, and then she'd be making a soup out of the bone, and you know, there was that, that piece of meat would last us two or three days, if not four days. You know, we were a family of six. You know, so. Now that you know, I come to America. And I'm living. I've been living in the U.S. for 25 years, and you know, we can have meat with every single meal, uh, and it costs nothing. Anybody can go to a deli and have a beef sandwich, or a, you know, a ham sandwich, or a, you know, there's just meat everywhere. And so the you know, that that cost of the price of meat, and that, and to, you know, to Tom's point, the the food almost being too cheap, as a result, results in people one having things like meat too much, which causes, of course, goes back to the you know, that awful crowding of animals and the, the way they're treated because if, if you're, you know, how else do you actually create that kind of food without actually having poor conditions because you, ha- you have to produce so much of it. But that's, you know, the, that's the key, isn't it? It's that, again, you're not paying the true cost of the food. You're paying, you're paying a fraction of what it really costs to produce it. So as, as Tom said, no politician wants to be known as the guy who made food more expensive, right? But you can only raise animals well if you're gonna charge more for that meat. I think that means a return to the day where, yes, you eat less than each serving. The meat is better, but you have to, it's more expensive and you have to eat less of it. And that I think is the right idea. And that's the idea that most of the world had until the United States came along with its ability to produce cheap enough meat so that people could eat as much of it as they wanted to. And now that meat is that cheap across Europe also, and in, and in a lot of the world, South America as well. You've written a lot of extraordinary books, and I was just looking at a few of them, and I'm someone who has experimented myself with certain types of diets over my life. I've done things like you know the Atkins diet and the South Beach diet and this diet and that diet, just to see well, what- look great, it must be working. Oh, there you go, it must be working, right? <laughs> well, they, they actually almost put me in hospital. I mean, that was the funny thing. I, I actually had a crisis of my own. I was doing the Atkins diet, looked great on the outside, and actually had we had our second child, Jasmine, and I went to increase my life insurance. I was 39 years old, and they did the blood test. They came back and they said, you're uninsurable. In fact, go and see a cardiologist immediately. Wow. And I went to the cardiologist and they said, it's as if you've been eating hamburgers your entire life and you're a 75-year-old man. You know, and I was like, what are you talking about? What, what, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I've got a six pack. What do you mean? You know, and they were like, you may have a six pack on the outside, but you're obese on the inside. You know, so you, you have a real problem. And what are you eating? And um Dr. Stein, hamburgers every meal. It was the meat. It was yeah. I was just eating. You know, the Atkins diet is meat, fat, you know, and no carbs. And that, that's what I was drinking: milk, cheese, and just meat and, and protein and what have you. And you know, physically on the outside, it seemed like it looked great, but it was a real problem on the inside. And I actually became a vegan by her command on that wow. day as I walked in. Wow! And I went in as a meat eater who only ate meat, and I walked out a vegan. Right, and I managed to lower my my score by ninety points in about eight months, purely by becoming vegan. It was very hard. I'm now a pescatarian, but you wrote a book called VB Six, Vegan Before Six. Right, that's what it stands for. Talk, talk to us. I mean, it was changing gears here a little bit, but I think that there's you know we, there's the big picture clearly about farming and the world and what have you. But for certain people, it's about 
just regular people, how do they play their part? But a lot of it is what they eat and, and as consumers, therefore what that demands off, off the supply chain, because it's, you know, you can change the world, I believe, by as a consumer, by what you buy, what you purchase, what you want. And it, it's, it's a, everyone has to be a part of this. It isn't just a government decision. It's government reacting to the, what the people want, right? It's a totally great question. And people do always want to talk about what and how they eat. Well, the story about Vegan Before Six, which I wrote in 2010, I think, um, not unlike your story. I, I, you know, I was a food writer. I was traveling like crazy. I was eating in Michelin restaurants and traveling around the world and hanging out with chefs and living the life. Um, and when I was home, I cooked well and I cooked whatever I wanted. And, and I went to the doctor and I was 57. And he said, well, you've dodged every bullet so far, but now you basically have the profile of a typical 57-year-old American male. You have high blood pressure, you have high cholesterol, you're borderline high blood sugar, you know, your knees hurt, you're fat. So I said, what should I do? And he said, become a vegan. And I said, I can't become a vegan. I'm like a food writer. It's just not going to work. And he said, well, you're a smart guy, figure something out. So I did this vegan before six, which was basically, is basically eat like the most, the strictest possible diet during the day. No white food, no white rice, no pasta, no white flour, certainly no junk food, no sugar, uh, no desserts, no meat, no animal products at all. So I ate like that until six o'clock at night. And then I did whatever the hell I wanted to. So, and I was drinking in those days. So at six o'clock, I would start drinking. I would eat whatever I wanted. I, it didn't matter. And it worked great. I lost in less than a year, I lost 35 pounds. My cholesterol went from like 240 to 180. Sort of similar. My blood sugar went back to normal. My blood pressure went back to normal. So that worked. And, you know, I'm, I'm less religious about it than I used to be. But mostly I eat, I mean, you could now it's called intermittent fasting or flexitarian or the two-thirds vegan diet or whatever you want to call it. I mostly eat pretty light and pretty clean during the day. And then at night, you know, I'll have a piece of fish or a piece of meat. I'll have some butter or whatever. And, uh, you know, often I'll have dessert or, but, you know, it's now almost 15 years later. And all my numbers are are pretty good. Mark, you have been a fabulous guest. You're one of those people that we I think we could all just sit around and around a campfire and just talk and talk and talk and try and solve the world's problems. Really good luck and congratulations on your book, Animal Vegetable Junk. Before you go, we have something called Last Orders on the Shaken and Stirred show. It's this little rapid fire. Here we go. All right. Boom. If you had only one ingredient, what would it be, Mark? What's your top ingredient? What's your one most favorite, most, most precious thing? I think I'll go with olive oil. I mean, I could say salt. Really? Salt? That's, I would, that's literally the last thing I would have thought you would have said. I mean, you're not saying this is the one thing you're going to be eating for the no. rest of your life, no, no, are no, you? That's actually, that's actually your, last, your next question. But this question <laughs> is, I, I was curious as to like the one most important ingredient to you. Right. I don't know. I think, you know, the commonality among almost everything I cook is oil and the oil that I use the most of is olive oil. So I guess I'll go with that. No, good, good, good answer. Actually, it's, it's, I'm thinking about it now you said it, I'm like, absolutely. It's for me too. How important is a great olive oil and what a yeah. difference it makes to food, you know, ruin a salad and it can make it anything else. Okay. So you asked about your, about the final ingredient. Your last meal, if you had only allowed to have one last meal on this planet, what would it be if you could choose anything? You know, it depends on the season. It depends where I am. But I think I would like to find the best ingredients I can possibly find wherever I am and cook them myself and have that be my last meal. I don't know precisely what it is because I don't know what those ingredients are going to be. So wow. that's, you know, that's the real answer. That's a great answer. That's a very good answer. Or I could All say right. a cheeseburger, you know, but. <laughs> hey, you know. Um, what gets your goat and what floats your boat? 
I think obsession with precious ingredients really annoys the hell out of me, like Himalayan pink salt, if that's a thing. I think it is. That kind of stuff makes me crazy. I mean, it's just pure marketing. And I think what I really love, I, it goes, it's sort of the same as the last question in a way, but there was a point at which I learned that really good food, really good cooking starts with great ingredients. So Alice Waters, who founded Chez Panisse, I guess most people know who she is, once said to me, the secret of Chez Panisse is we take great ingredients and we don't fuck them up. And I think that's exactly right. Really right. You know, yeah. another thing Alice said, whether this is useful to you or not, she said, when we started Chez Panisse, we used to go to farmers and say, here's what we'd like you to grow for us. And we realized that the best thing to do was to have the farmers tell us what to cook. Like have the farmers say, here's what we have that's good. Take this and go cook it. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but so much of it does go back to farming. And it's something that most eaters don't think about. We're so alienated from it. You know, it's our grandparents who, or even in these days, great grandparents who were the last people who, knew about anything about farming, the last generation where the majority of people knew about farming. In the movie of your life, who would you have play you, Mark? Oh, I just told me I looked like Jeffrey Tambor. I was kind of bummed out. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know. I like Brad Pitt. I would go with Brad Pitt, I think. Nice middle-aged, handsome man. Yeah, good actor. And final question, shaken or stirred? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm pretty much on the shaken side for that. Yeah. I like <laughs> that foaminess. I like the foaminess. There you go. Why not? Mark Bittman, The Bittman Project, his new book, Animal Vegetable Junk. Uh, thank you so much. You have been a fabulous guest, full of, full of wise uh, knowledge and, and really some you know, great questions, great answers. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good luck with everything and enjoy Bermuda. We wish we, we would, could come visit. Thanks, gents. It was really fun. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken Instead. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.